Tumor Talks, a podcast about clinical cases in oncology, and we are your hosts. I'm Dr. Kathy Marshall, a medical oncologist. I'm Dr. Beatrice Wills, a medical oncologist and hematologist. And I'm Dr. Jonah Amata, an internal medicine resident physician. Welcome to our colon cancer episode. We are excited to have Dr. Michael Foote joining us today. Dr. Michael Foote is a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Mike, we are so excited to have you on our podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. No, I'm I'm very honored to join and discuss this uh, this important disease. And thank you for having me. So, Mike, should we start maybe with the epidemiology of colon cancer? Absolutely. I think it's a great place to start. So, um, you know, colon cancer is a common cancer. It's uh, depending on how you break it down, about the third most common cancer in the country, fourth if you count cancers overall, um, based on whether you look at men or women or both. And it's a pretty deadly cancer. It's actually the second most deadly cancer in terms of sheer numbers. So it's a problem that unfortunately affects many people. Um, most of the cases of colon cancer are sporadic in the sense that they occur without a clear genetic or familial inheritance. So um, there's many people that are looking at the risk factors for colon cancer and trying to figure out how we can better predict patients that will eventually have to suffer from it so we can intervene earlier. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, the two big categories that I, I kind of like to introduce people to in terms of how I think about things is first, there's an anatomical category, two anatomical categories of colon cancer um, or colorectal cancer, I'll say. So we evaluate colorectal cancer based on whether the tumor is on the left side of the colon, which includes the descending colon, part of the transverse colon, and then the rectum and the sigmoid colon, or the right side of the colon. Uh, which includes part of the transverse colon and the um, ascending colon um, in the cecum. So uh, that's an important distinction because we actually think about those tumors biologically as pretty different and genomically they have different landscapes. And then finally, they're treated differently as well. Then the second bucket that I think about colorectal cancer is the molecular status of the cancer, specifically the mismatch repair status. So we can talk about this a little bit later, but um, patients that have tumors that are deficient in mismatch repair often have cancers that have lots and lots of mutations. And these are biologically very different than the majority of colorectal cancers, which have intact mismatch repair enzymes. So in terms of the epidemiology, most colorectal cancers are left-sided, although there's a good fraction that are also right-sided. And over 85 to 90% of them are mismatch repair proficient. So they're the normal kind that don't have the tons of mutations. But a very important minority of colorectal cancers, about maybe as much as 10 to 15%, are mismatch repair deficient. Um, and then just lastly about the epidemiology, uh, the majority of patients who have colorectal cancer are elderly. But an important trend that we're seeing now, which is concerning, is that while colorectal cancer is falling in patients over the age of 60, the median age of diagnosis is going down markedly. And actually there's a rapid rise in patients who we have, uh, who we say have young onset colorectal cancer, which is younger than the age of 50. So in that group of patients, we're seeing a pretty steep rise and it's not really clear why. 
Mike, and how do patients usually present? In terms of how folks present, a lot of patients with colorectal cancer are asymptomatic, um, and their tumor is discovered on a routine colonoscopy, which is in the United States recommended for everyone over the age of 45. Um, in patients who do present with symptoms, the symptoms typically encompass gastrointestinal concerns. So constipation is a common symptom, blood in the toilet, uh, whether it's bright red blood or whether it's dark tarry stools is another way patients can present. Some folks have abdominal pain or weight loss. Um, the majority of people though present without symptoms and they're found to be incidentally, uh, incidentally have colorectal cancer. And besides colonoscopy, are there other modalities for screening? There are. So there's a couple approved tests for screening in the United States. Um, there's the full colonoscopy, which is the most common way people are screened and probably the most thorough. Um, there is sigmoidoscopy that can also be performed. Um, and that's typically performed uh, you know, more frequently than a colonoscopy, but that is a screening test that's done. Sometimes that's also done in conjunction with another test, such as a DNA test that looks at... Um, DNA mutations in the stool. Um, two types of stool tests include the Cologuard test, or there's a FIT immunohistochemical test that's done um, more frequently. Those tests are pretty good, but to be honest with you, a lot of us in uh, the colorectal cancer field think that the statistics for the Cologuard and the immunofit test are a little bit inflated. And so we do truly recommend a, a true colonoscopy unless it's otherwise um, unless the patient can't, can't have, unless it's truly contraindicated. Got it. Um, and when a patient is diagnosed with colon cancer, what is the initial workup? Is there any other imaging used for diagnosis and staging? It's a great question. So, you know, we always check, uh, for organ health, uh, which is helpful just for future treatment. So we do a full panel of, uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, CBC, we often will get a CEA, um, other biomarkers we typically don't get. Um, in terms of imaging, that's an important modality. So everybody will get a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis with contrast. Um, and if the patient has rectal cancer or rectosigmoid cancer, they'll often get an MRI of the rectum or the pelvis, um, depending on which institution you're in. Um, the MRIs are really helpful for rectal cancer because they can help delineate whether there's invasion of surrounding structures. And it especially helps with operative and radiation planning. One important thing I would put out there is that a lot of um, people in the community may be asking about PET-CT scans. So it's an, PET-CTs are an important modality, obviously, in cancer imaging. But for colorectal cancer, our institution feels pretty strongly that PET-CTs aren't merited. Um, they can be very sensitive scans, but often fairly nonspecific, particularly in our disease. So we see a lot of false positives. And uh, there's actually been research done at Memorial Sloan Kettering by Dr. Len Saltz and others who have looked into the risk benefits of PET-CTs and found that it's uh, frankly a waste of money and often produces more anxiety without any additional benefit in terms of imaging. So important when we talk about cancer and, you know, cost-effective modalities. Thanks exactly. for pointing that out. Oh, um, absolutely. Mark, and one more thing too. So sorry, yeah. Beatrice. Um, 
But uh, if a patient is diagnosed with stage four disease, uh, part of the standard workup is to get uh, molecular testing with next generation sequencing as well. So that's something I should have mentioned, but uh, we'll do, I guess we can talk about that a little later as well. Yeah, sounds good. And um, once you have all the modalities, imaging, colonoscopy, et cetera, how do you stage the disease? Yeah, so we do, um, I kind of think of it in two, two phases. So there's um, the extent of the disease in terms of the um, places that the disease has traveled. So that's done with our CT imaging, like we mentioned, as well as with rectal cancer, it's done with MRI imaging. Um, and we look at things like nodal metastases as well as visceral metastases and the extent to which the tumor has um, penetrated either through the colon or rectum. Um, and then I think of also molecular staging, which um, really involves genetic sequencing like we talked about, but also testing for mismatch repair deficiency and um, looking at other characteristics of the pathology uh, for the tumor that can be very important for assessing prognosis as well as what therapies to use. And are there any other molecular testings or biomarkers that are relevant besides mismatch uh, repair deficiency? And how do you evaluate for mismatch um, repair deficiency? Yeah, so mismatch repair deficiency is really discovered in two main ways. There's technically a couple other ways to do it, but the two main ways are one is um, for any tumor, whether it's a stage one tumor or a stage four tumor, we do immunohistochemistry on the tumor sample, which typically comes back within a day or two. And they stain for the presence or absence of the four mismatch repair proteins. And if there's an absence of one or two of them, then we consider that highly suggestive of mismatch repair deficiency. Um, another way to test for it is to actually do microsatellite testing, where the test will look for five or six different microsatellite regions. Um, and they can actually evaluate it with that. It's a little bit harder and, and, and it doesn't really, uh, is a little bit less available in different centers. Um, and then the last way that we can test for it is with next generation sequencing. So you can actually uh, have something called an MSI sensor score or another um, algorithm that looks at the number and type of mutations, as well as the presence of mutations in microsatellite regions and can report it on next generation sequencing testing. Most of the time, the next generation sequencing tests take at least a week to 10 days to come back. So the easiest way is with immunohistochemistry. And then in terms of other biomarkers of importance, it depends a little bit on the stage. Right now um, for stage one through three, MMR is the main one that we look at. Uh, for stage four disease, the other important ones that we look at is something called KRAS which is um, an important mutation that can uh, inform us whether there might be resistance to different therapies. Uh, a second other important marker is something called BRAF. BRAF is a member of the MAP kinase pathway, and we do have specific drugs that can target BRAF. Those cancers are, uh, honestly are typically more aggressive as well. And then the last one that's up and coming, and actually we just had FDA approval in the last two weeks for, for drugs targeting this, this marker is HER2, which is a big marker in breast cancer, but we look for HER2 amplification with immunohistochemistry. Um, we look at FISH if the immunohistochemistry is uh, equivocal, and then it can also be evaluated on next generation sequencing tests. Got it. Mike, and in terms of um, referral to a patient, once a patient is diagnosed and appropriately staged, who do you think we should refer a patient to in the community and elsewhere? 
Well, it depends a little bit on what stage the patient is in. I mean, there's so many exciting developments in the world of um, colorectal cancer that it's never a bad idea to have them see a tertiary care center. Um, there are some pretty incredible trials, you know, including studies with mismatch repair deficiency, which is rare. And if someone has mismatch repair deficiency, they really should see uh, someone at a tertiary care center because it may be that we have pretty exciting immunotherapy options for them. Um, if it's a mismatch repair proficient tumor, then if they have a colon tumor, they should probably see a surgeon if it's stage one through three. Otherwise, they should see a medical oncologist first if it's stage four. If it's a rectal cancer, we typically treat those cancers with a couple different modalities, including radiation treatment, sur potentially surgery, and medical oncology. So those folks with uh, rectal tumors should see each of those doctors. Um, I never think it's a bad thing to stop by a tertiary center, though. I mean, at least just to see what might be offered in terms of portfolio of clinical trials. We do have the, um, excuse me, uh, first line trials available to folks that have different biomarkers. And so it's worth, it's worth stopping by. I agree. It's worth the trip. Thank you, Mike, so much for your teaching. I love learning about diagnosis, epidemiology of colon cancer. We would love to have you back to learn a bit about uh, treatment and prognosis of colon and rectal cancer. Thank you so much. I'd love to be back and happy to take any questions if uh, anybody ever has them. Message me anytime. Thank you, Mike. So to recap, colon cancer is the third most common cancer overall. It occurs mostly in elderly patients. However, cases in young adults are on the rise. Most cases are sporadic, left-sided anatomically, and most do not have the MMR mutation. Patients usually present via screening testing, and also patients usually present asymptomatic. Initial workup includes CMP, CBC, and usually get a CA level. And we get a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis with IV contrast for staging. Of note, if patients have rectal or rectosigmoid disease, we also get an MRI pelvis, mainly for operative and radiation oncology planning. Of note, for staging, we also get molecular testing, especially in stage 4 disease. And as I mentioned, staging is usually done looking at extent of the disease, looking at tumor nodes and mess, just like for our other solid tumors. And we also get molecular markers for staging as well. Important biomarkers include MMR, KRAS, BRAF, and HER2. Important consultants to have on board is truly dependent on the stage. However, we usually recommend sending patients to tertiary care centers to see if they have any immunotherapy options, especially for our patients with MMR mutations. Patients who have stage 1 to 3 disease usually need to see a surgeon. Patients who have stage 4 disease need to see medical oncology. And patients with rectal disease usually need to be seen by oncology, radiation oncology, and surgery. Thank you so much for listening to today's Tumor Talks Tumor Basics podcast for colon cancer. Thank you for listening to us and hope to see you next time. A special thanks to Primo for recording and composing our background music. Tumor Talks is an independent podcast that does not represent the institutional views or opinions of our employers, Johns Hopkins Hospital or Memorial Sloan Kettering, or that of our guests. 